So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we're really excited to be joined again by Lauren Balhorn, who's a contributing editor at Jacobin and a lead editor at the Rosa Luxemburg, I'm going to say Institute, but that's not, is it Stiftung? Is that the right pronunciation? The term word is Stiftung. It really just means foundation. Oh, foundation. Okay, good. Um, So we're going to talk about the September 26th German federal election today, and and, and specifically about the defeat, the massive defeat for the left. So let's, I guess, begin there. How bad was it for the far left in Germany? Uh, The party was this close. I mean, you can't see my fingers, but I'm holding them very close together. The party was, uh, I mean, the party avoided being kicked out of parliament by uh, really just a hair. And if it were not for the direct election of three MPs in three districts where Die Linke has historically been quite strong, all in East Germany, um, the party would not have actually had enough votes to stay in parliament. And that would have meant that would have meant losing a lot of public funding. Uh, the party's either way going to lose a lot of public funding just because its result was so much worse than last time around, but completely falling out of parliament or disappearing from parliament would have been a, a disastrous, not only because of the loss of public funds, but because it would have meant that the party would have completely disappeared from kind of the mainstream political discussion and discourse. We, the party wouldn't have been on television anymore. There would no longer be uh, you know, invitations to um, what are called elephant rounds in German uh, German TV. So the serious news programs fairly often host these debate programs where they bring the leaders of the different parties together to debate the issues of the day. And if Die Linke was not in parliament, they would no longer be in any of these discussions. So it was it was really close to a complete wipeout. And if you break down kind of the numbers, where did Die Linke lose votes? How many votes did it lose? Die Linke lost nearly half of the votes that it received in 2017, so nearly half of its result. And its strongest or its heaviest losses were among kind of the groups of people, the kinds of people that you would think a left-wing party should represent. So people without college degrees, uh, blue-collar workers, uh, people who uh, you know aren't represented by the mainstream parties, uh, trade union members, and all of those categories were traditionally, not traditionally, but for at least the last 10 years that the link that D-Link has existed, the party has done fairly well, its vote share collapsed. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was by all accounts a complete disaster. Okay. Before we get into sort of the why, I'm curious, what does a left-wing party in Germany look like and, and stand for? One of the questions or one of the debates that's going to be, that is going on right now in the party and will continue to, um, I'm sure for the rest of the year, is uh, did the party make a mistake uh, in terms of moving too far to the center and focusing its message too much on wanting to, to set up a progressive coalition together with the Social Democrats and the, the Green Party, the two other sort of center-left parties in in, in German politics. And I mean, what, Die, what I think what sets Die Linke apart historically um, is that Die Linke was founded in the mid 2000s as a response to the Social Democratic Party, uh, the traditionally center left pro-worker party in German politics, moving to the right or to the center on a number of fiscal issues and a number of labor market issues. So um, in line with sort of maybe the reforms that uh, we saw Bill Clinton enact in the United States in the 1990s, things like welfare reform, or some of the things that uh, Tony Blair's Labor Party did uh, in the UK, in the mid-2000s, the uh, 
red green so social democrat and green government that was governing germany enacted a number of reforms to the labor market and the welfare system uh, that many of those parties traditional voters uh, felt were tantamount to betrayal uh, or at least a betrayal of their values and that kind of anger that um, that that created and that feeling of disillusionment among a lot of the traditional supporters of the left-wing parties led to the creation of, of Delisa. And in many ways, politically, in terms of what does the party actually demand, um, its platform was very much calling for the kind of politics that the social Democrats traditionally represented in terms of mm. uh, the labor market, welfare system, things like that, together with um, some more traditional socialist and left-wing demands. So uh, Germany le should leave NATO, uh, Germany should ban all arms exports. Germany is one of the major uh, producers of arms that, that are sold to conflict parties all over the world and feed a lot of small um, regional wars. Um, so a combination of, I think, traditional left-wing welfare state policies and kind of an anti-militarist, uh, maybe you could say anti-imperialist um, foreign policy. And then combined with, uh, and that's a specificity of uh, German history, uh, this tie to, uh, to the Eastern population, to the people who live in what used to be East Germany, uh, and there are feelings of uh, being disenfranchised, uh, being disadvantaged in the current system. Um, Historically, until this election, um, Die Linke was kind of the voice of those people, of those frustrated East Germans in Parliament. My students always ask, you know, how do we understand the enduring support for, for Merkel? How do we understand what a Christian Democrat is or what a social Democrat is? You know, we don't have those parties here. So are the social Democrats just like our Democrats and the Christian Democrats just like our Republicans? I think that that is... Uh, that's a useful way to make, or that's a fair way to make the situation understandable for someone with a very American frame of reference. But uh, what's interesting about Germany, and I mean, I would say most of Western Europe, is even the conservative parties do not come close to uh, sort of the level of rabid nationalism, uh, Christian fundamentalism, and sometimes, you know, kind of open racism and things like that, that you see in parts of the Republican Party, um, especially over the last 20, uh, 30 years. But in terms of a general center-right, center-left division, yeah, maybe that's useful. But I think what's important to understand about Angela Merkel and why Angela Merkel has been able to hang on to power for so long is that she has in many ways in her last in the last 16 years that she governed Germany, she adopted many of the policies of the social Democrats. So she softened her position on a lot of things, whether it's gay marriage, migration, but also economic issues. She really moved away from the kind of uh, frugality and neoliberal policies that you would associate a conservative government with, um, was very willing to uh, put state money in all kinds of public projects, especially especially after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the German government under a Christian democratic leadership um, was very willing to take on debt and do whatever needed to be done to keep the private sector running with public money um, and did not pursue any further of the kinds of welfare and labor market reforms that the government before her um, had taken on. So I think she, she understood 
that those policies aren't very popular among the German electorate, that the German electorate, even a lot of Germans who would say that they're conservative, favor a lot of um, social policies and spending policies that we, that maybe in the United States you would call liberal. Um, and so she adopted many of those policies or at least compromised with the other parties on those policies in order to kind of capture the entire political center. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so so it's interesting. So you're seeing that the Social Democrats did the Bill Clinton and moved to the right, and then Merkel moved a bit to the left, um, and then you have the space now on the far left for the Linke. Exactly. I mean, that's, that, that was the space that the left, the left party in Germany was occupying since 2005, um, when it was first founded, um, was uh, kind of this protest vote of people who were dissatisfied with um, with the government and felt like they didn't have a voice in government. Um, that I think was strengthened by the fact that the Social Democrats um, for you know, 12 of the 16 years that Angela Merkel was in power, she was in power in a coalition with the Social Democrats. So mm-hmm. the traditionally, the traditionally kind of left-wing worker party was in government and the Greens, although many people wouldn't see the Greens as a progressive party, and they certainly are on, on some questions. The Greens are in many ways a party of economically successful, educated, upwardly mobile people living in big cities. Um, and so there was always, there was a space among the disenfranchised that the left party could really capitalize on. Mm-hmm. And um, what's, it, what's it like, specifically since the 08 crisis, what's it like to be a, a working class person in, in Germany? Has life gotten harder since then? Is it, what, how does it compare to the life of a working class person, say here in the United States? Well, I mean, it would really depend on what you mean by working class. I mean, I think mm-hmm. one thing that's important to remember about Germany, something that's different uh, to the United States, but also to a lot of the uh, industrialized world, um, is uh, that although there has been a certain degree of deindustrialization in Germany, it's nothing like what happened in the United States or Great Britain in the 1980s. So um, you don't have, you know, I'm, I'm, my family's, uh, most of my family's from Detroit and there's, there's nothing comparable to what happened to Detroit in the mm. 1980s. Um, so there's not that kind of, in fact, Many of the uh, you know, metalworking industries and the car industries in Germany are still going very strong and still offer very secure, well-paid union jobs. So if you're one of those kinds of working class people, you've got a pretty good life. you probably got a good pension. You probably make 20, 30, 40 bucks an hour. Uh, you probably get to retire when you're 60. You get all of the perks that come with having a strong labor movement that is able to negotiate with management and win, win a good deal for their members. But beyond that, you know, that's maybe what you could maybe call a core workforce. Uh, there are millions of people, something around seven or eight million people who work uh, in what's called the low wage sector. Now, what exactly that means has changed over time. Uh, Germany actually didn't have a minimum wage until about 2015. It's another thing that um, Angela Merkel supported in the end. It wasn't her idea, but she, in the end, decided it would be advantageous for her to support it. Um, Germany didn't have a minimum wage also because it had very strong unions who could kind of determine wages in a lot of industries which made a minimum wage 
not as important, not as necessary. And in fact, many unions for a long time felt that a minimum wage would be counterproductive because it would give the employers something to orient around. Mm. I mean, it would maybe give them a tool to bargain down the unions. But since the uh, reforms I mentioned in the 2000s, which deregulated parts of the German labor market, also cut down welfare spending and uh, cut down uh, the amount of money that unemployed people receive from the government, uh, there's been the ex an explosion of a, a low wage sector. It's one of the biggest in Europe. It's something about maybe a quarter of all working class people or people who work for a living in Germany are part of it. And now that might mean that they make nine or 10 euro an hour. There was a, there was a time 10 years ago where they were making maybe three or four euro an hour and receiving government benefits on top of that to make ends meet. So if you're somebody like that, or if you're one of the many people who are long-term unemployed in Germany, you know, it's not, it's not quite as rough as it is in the United States. You know, Germany still has a welfare state that ensures that people, they might live very hand to mouth and very frugally, but they're not going to slip into poverty the way that is unfortunately very, very common in the United States because there are some still some kind of minimal standards. But if you're one of those people who's dependent on, on, on welfare and has not been able to find a job. And even though unemployment is quite low in Germany right now, we're still talking about millions of people, uh, it's rough. You, you get your rent paid for and you can probably afford enough to eat for the month, but anything beyond that, you can forget. And especially if you have children or other dependents, it's a very hard scramble life. And it's something that's fairly new in Germany. I mean, until these reforms in the 2000s, that kind of poverty was was pretty much unheard of. Mm -hmm. Well, given that, it seems to me it would make sense that yeah, a, a far left party who's fighting for the for the rights of the working class would do really well. But obviously, that's not what happened here. And in, in, in 2019, I think you wrote that the party did pretty poorly in the European parliamentary elections as well. So, how do we understand what's happening? You know, I think there are there are both global trends and there are uh, local or national trends that kind of come together. I think that one thing that has happened, which uh, is not a phenomenon limited to Germany, is uh, the emergence of uh, what you know what political scientists would call right populism. Um, so in the United States, we would think of someone like Donald Trump. In the UK, we might think of uh, somebody like Nigel Farage and the uh, UK Independence Party. Uh, in Germany, the uh, manifestation of that, that phenomenon is what's called the uh, Alternative for Germany, or the AFD, uh, the D being for Deutschland, not Germany, of course. Um, and this is a party that, in terms of its actual economic policies, is um, pretty pro-rich people, let's put it that way. Uh, it has the kinds of economic policies that you would have expected from the CDU, maybe in the 1970s or 80s, um, very pro small business owner, pro corporation, uh, and in many ways, anti worker. But um, what they've managed to do is take kind of a populist, we the people sort of rhetoric, combine that with some Germans fears of uh, mass migration, and I think also some, some feelings of resentment that are largely unjustified, but feelings of resentment that people in Germany, working people in Germany, especially working class people in rural East Germany have been struggling for decades 
And uh, now the state is willing to spend billions of euros on refugees, but they never have any money for, for the little people, you know, for the Germans. Very similar to the kinds of rhetoric you'll hear about migration from some working class people in the United States who are afraid that people from Latin America will, you know, take their jobs. Um, and that development in East Germany has meant that over the last five years, more or less, uh, Die Linke has lost Although actually in this last in this last election, Die Linke didn't actually lose that many voters to the to the populist right, but that's because that had already happened in the years prior. And mm. so one part of Die Linke's kind of traditional base, this kind of East German protest vote, has in many ways gone over uh, to the right. The people who feel disenfranchised and angry, they now express their anger by voting for the far right instead of the far left. And that yeah, that's something that we've seen happening. Um, uh, around the world. You also, the elections in the Czech Republic last weekend also saw the left-wing parties um, get devastated. Um, you could argue there's a similar dynamic mm. uh, going, going, going on there. But I think what's also happened in Germany is, um, and that's what uh, more specific to the German situation, is you don't have the kinds of economic difficulties that you have in a lot of other European countries. So the, you know, the labor market reforms of the 2000s, at the time, they were quite a shock, and they have objectively made a lot of people's lives harder. Um, but now they're 15 years old. People have kind of gotten used to it. It's become, you know, it's normalized. And at the same time, a lot of people look around at Greece, at Italy, or even at France, at most of Germany's southern neighbors, and think, well, it could be a lot worse. We have stable economic growth rates. We have, um, especially, you know, for for people who can uh, who, who go to college I and mean, colleges, you know, still universities free in Germany, there are still some prospects for making a decent living. And the the kind of the anger uh, that that was in the air in the early two and in the two thousands has dissipated. Whether it be around labor reforms, around uh, the the war in Afghanistan, that kind of protest mood that. Um, uh, Delinka kind of rode rode along uh, until 2011 2012 has dissipated, and it's just a fact that uh, over the last two years the Social Democratic Party has made some soft steps back to the left. So at the end of 2019, they elected a new leadership that was widely considered to be left wing, um, and they are certainly more left wing than previous leaders of the party leaders in recent years. And that, I think, for a lot of voters, uh, that posed a real dilemma, because um, if it looks like the Social Democrats might actually pass some of the policies that you want to see passed uh, and some of the policies that D-Link has been calling for for 10 years, and they have a lot more experience in government and a much better chance at winning enough votes to enter government, well, there's, I think, a lot of voters who, for tactical or strategic reasons, then will decide okay, well, I'll vote for the Social Democrats. You know, why not take my chances? Mm -hmm. um, 15 years is a long time. A lot of the people voted today were kids back then. They don't remember that experience. And I think even a lot of people who do remember that, um, they've, you know, they've seen Die Linke be a protest party for 15 years. And uh, as nice as it is, is to have a voice of protest in parliament, I think a lot of voters and exit polls show the same, that voters want their parties to govern. Very few voters voter very few voters vote just to protest. They vote because they want to change the government. And so 
yeah, they took their chances with one of the more moderate progressive parties. Yeah. And so what do you think the conversations are going to be like? They're probably already happening in, in within the party, within Die Linke. That's something that I kind of try to hint at in my uh, article on Jacobin a couple of weeks ago is the other thing that's the big argument that's been going on in Die Linke for at least five, six years now and kind of crystallizes around the personality of Zara Wagenknecht, who is um, the party's most famous member, probably most popular politician, one of the most popular politicians in Germany, but also in many ways, um, not very left-wing anymore. Let's put it that way. She's still, in, you know, I think if she were in the United States, you know, she'd be up there with Bernie Sanders and AOC in terms of the kind of policies she advocates. But for a far left party in Europe, there are a number of questions where she disagrees with the left. Um, so, for example, she is um, she's very skeptical of the idea of open borders and kind of unlimited migration. You know, something that's not controversial in the United States. Uh, being skeptical of that, I mean, is not very controversial in the United States. Mm-hmm. Is seen in many parts of the German uh, left and the German far left as being uh, kind of unacceptable or breaking with our principles. Um, she has moved away from kind of a strict socialist politics and is more interested in um, what's called ordoliberalism and sort of just a German school of economic thought that thinks more about a bit, you kind of say it's a similar to Keynesianism. How can the state regulate the economy to optimize results rather than how can the state run the economy in kind of socialist sense? Um, but she's very controversial in the party particularly around her, um, her stance on migration and her stance on what she calls identity politics, which you know basically can mean a lot of things. But by what she means, the party spends too much time worrying about things like gender inclusive language uh, or representation on television of minorities and should go back more to the bread and butter economic issues that it's known for. And so uh, she wrote a book earlier this year uh, that's very popular. It's still on the bestseller list 10 years, or 10 years, excuse me, six months after it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, that basically kind of makes this argument the left in Germany, but also the left around the world, the more it focuses on cultural issues, the less it reaches working class people. And so a lot of people in the party, understandably, feel a bit betrayed by that. I mean, she put out a book attacking the party in a very important election year, and she's a very mm-hmm. She's a very popular person. A lot of people listen to her. A lot more people listen to her than listen to most other people in the party, quite frankly. And so there's a lot of people in the party who feel like she stabbed us in the back. She's the problem. People aren't voting for us. They're voting for the Greens and the Social Democrats because they want the kinds of, you know, some of the more cultural issues that Sara is attacking. Um, so that's one strong, one major argument that's being had right now. Um, that, you know, had the party not had Zara Wagenknecht attacking the party in public. And of course, attacking your own party in public is never a good look and never helps the party do better in elections. And I think you could make the case that had Zara not written that book, at least not this year, Dilinka would have done a little bit better. But whether that's really the core of the problem, I think is, is another question. Um, because what, what I mentioned at the beginning of the of this interview, the collapse of the vote among working class voters, among people without a college education, among unemployed people, suggests that Delinka has stopped 
being relevant to a lot of those people? And that is, uh, I think, a broader question where, or a bigger problem where the notion that I'll have Dilinka just adopt a little, a little bit more of the cultural politics that Zarabagnik deposes, that they would reach those people. I think that's a pretty questionable assertion. Mm-hmm. That's going to be that's going to be the big argument over the next six months or longer. I think mm-hmm. in the German left is what went wrong. How did we lose those people, and can we get them back? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sort of I'm really curious now. What's your sense of why? why they've lost that relevance with the, with the union members and the working class? Well, I think there is uh, a, a real generational issue. Um, so I think, you know, I think that uh, I'm someone who's been politically active since I was a teenager. I don't think about much else. Um, and <laughs> a lot of the people in, a lot of people who are politically active are like that. And that's okay. You know, we need those kinds of people. Um, we couldn't have a political movement or a political party without them. But there's a danger, I think, to, if you're one of those people, if you're someone like me, to think that that's what most people are like, you know, and to, um, to think about politics in that sense, and almost like in, in, in terms of litmus tests or purity tests, is this, is this election platform, is this thing we're saying, does this meet all of my criteria as a, as a very political person, as a socialist person? Uh, and to think not enough about, I almost want to say some of the more, the more superficial factors. So I think one thing that really hurts Dilinka, and this is also has to do with the, the situation with Salavagnikov, is when Dilinka was founded, it still had a lot of leading figures who either came from East Germany or came from the Social Democrats in West Germany, who had been around for decades and were very popular and well-liked at either on a national level or at least in their state where they came from. So people like the founding chairpersons, Gregor Gysi and Oscar Lafontaine. Gregor Gysi is still in parliament. He's one of the reasons his direct election in his district is one of the reasons Dilinka managed to stay in parliament. But someone like Oscar Lafontaine, who'd been a, the finance minister and had also been the minister, the prime minister of his state for many years. And is even today, I think you could say a beloved figure among many working class and left wing people in his state. People like Uli Malara, uh, who was also an important social democrat, or Klaus Ernst, an important social democrat from Bavaria in the south. Someone like Lothar Bisky, who passed away about a decade ago, who was an important politician in Brandenburg in the East. These people had a certain standing um, in society that meant that when they talked, they reached much wider circles than kind of the political left or the left wing scene or the left wing movement. They were able to reach your average voter who might not be particularly left wing, but has some progressive ideas um, and is, is, is open to kind of the message that, uh, that Dilinka is putting forward, but is not going to go on the internet or open up a newspaper and go through what exactly every party stands for and then decide on that basis who they're gonna vote for. Mm-hmm. And in the last 15 years, a lot of those people have either retired or they've passed away. Um, and the party did not manage to produce new leaders. Uh, they have one leader right now, a younger woman from Frankfurt named uh, Janine Wissler, who uh, I would say has some of those charismatic qualities that the older leaders oftentimes had. 
she's very talented on talk shows. She can uh, hold her own in debates against you know big, important right-wing politicians. And Zara Wagenknecht has that quality. But a lot of the people who kind of run the Linke today, um, they come from, you know, kind of activist milieus. So people like me who have been politically active for a long time and they care about politics very, very much, but they're not really politicians. And uh, I think that's something that is sometimes hard for socialists and radicals to accept is that at the end of the day, most people aren't that radical and they might be open to radical ideas, but to reach them, you need people who are politicians, people who can go on TV, who can go on the radio, and who can make, who can appeal to a broader segment of the populace. And so the Linka really has struggled in that category uh, to produce new generations of, of young charismatic leaders. You know, I mean, someone like Someone like AOC, uh, no matter what you might think of uh, everything she says or everything she does, she really connects with people. She connects with millions of people uh, in a way that uh, e even you know, even for the United States is pretty is pretty um, unique. Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's something where the Lake has really struggled. And kind of the the the, the question that I the, the point I mentioned before, I mean. A lot of people, you know, like exit polls, for example, say that 95% of the Linka's voters, when asked, want the Linka to join a government coalition. Now, no one in Germany wants to govern with the Linka. Right? <laughs> Neither the Social Democrats nor the Greens do, because they know that then they would have to stick to some of the promises. You know, if you look at the things the parties all promise in the election campaign, there's a lot of commonalities between the Linka and mm. the other two progressive parties. The difference is when they go in government, they don't keep any of those promises. So I think what a lot of voters uh, have wanted for the last decade is for Delinka to go into government and make these parties keep their promises. But that's the last thing those parties want to do. And I think for a lot of voters, this just reaches a point where you say, okay, I voted for them 10 times or four times over 10 years. They're still not in government. Nothing's changed. I'm just going to stay home. And that's, no, that's another one of the big numbers of the Delinka's collapsing vote share. They lost them over a million votes to the Social Democrats. They lost hundreds of thousands of votes to the Greens. But over half a million people who voted for Die Linke in 2017 just didn't vote at all this time around. So I think a general disappointment and disenfranchisement from politics in general also plays a role that Die Linke is in some corners of society seen as for better or for worse part of the political establishment and no longer seen as kind of a radical protest. Well, um, Lauren, the, the final question is oftentimes, you know, my dad, after listening to the shows, says that he ends up feeling really depressed about things. So I've started to, I've, I've started to introduce a, a new final question, which is, I'm asking all the guests now, what is the one thing in the world that you are right now, you know, most optimistic about? Most optimistic about. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I mean, it is a toughie. You know, it is a real toughie. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I grew up in the United States, and uh, the last couple of years until the pandemic hit, I was very enthusiastic and excited about Bernie Sanders, and I did as much as I could here from from Europe to support his campaign and phone banked and. Um, 
the combination of Bernie losing uh, and then um, the pandemic coming along has, I think, it has been tough on everybody on the left. I think it is. Uh, it's been a disillusioning couple of years or eighteen months. But and then, if if I'm honest, if I look at the immediate term, I'm not very optimistic. I think the next few years are going to be tough ones for the left. But there are always there are little, whether it be polling data or or things like um, the vote in Berlin uh, to nationalize a housing company. So basically for me, for, for, for listeners who don't know, uh, at the, the same day as the German election, there was also a referendum in the capital, Berlin, um, uh, that basically it was a, uh, it's not a binding referendum, but voters were asked, do they think that the city of Berlin and the, the Berlin government should buy up 300,000 some apartments that are currently in the hands of private developers who have jacked up the rents over the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, it was a major campaign. Thousands of people went out and collected signatures for it for a year. Um, and ultimately, nearly 60% of voters uh, ended up casting their ballots for that idea. Now, whether the Berlin government will actually honor the results of the referendum is another question. But things like that, the referendum in Berlin, uh, things like the way that people in the United States have rallied around the idea of Medicare for all, um, the growing sense, I think, among large majorities of people that we need to do something about climate change, even if they don't know what, and even if it might already be due, might already be too late, do give me uh, a feeling of some kind of hope that at the end of the day, most people are fairly progressive. They don't want to hurt their neighbors and they want a society that respects everybody and that guarantees everybody the sort of material conditions they need to thrive. That doesn't mean that everybody gets their own SUV or gets their own gigantic house in the suburbs, but that nobody should go hungry. Nobody should be trapped in poverty. And the knowledge that there is among large sections of the population, arguably among the majority, some kind of fundamental belief in human dignity as long as that continues to be the case or feels like it's the case, I have some optimism that socialists, environmentalists, the political left writ large will be able to cobble together the kind of coalitions that we would need to push forward the kinds of politics and you know, policy changes that we, that, we, that we desperately need to make life livable and enjoyable for everyone who lives on this planet. Whether that will happen in the next five to 10 years, I'd be pretty skeptical about that. But um, more so than uh, if you'd asked me five years ago, I feel optimistic that in my lifetime, we will see the beginnings of some kind of a transition into a more democratic and egalitarian uh, way of structuring society.